Good morning, CLC. Uh, Today we're going to be continuing on with our Jesus Plus series. And if you know, we've been doing this for a while. We've only got one more message after this one, and it will culminate on Easter Sunday. Uh, But before that, I want to take another second just to uh, talk about that Good Friday Stations of the Cross. Um, I'm personally really, really excited for it, and I really want to invite you guys to come out. Um, Today is Palm Sunday, as we mentioned. And we're going to talk about Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And next Sunday, we're going to celebrate Easter. Uh, But sometimes in between there, we forget uh, to remember what happened on Friday. On Friday, we're hoping that as a church that we can come together and we can just pause and stop and meditate and reflect on what Jesus actually did on the cross for us. See, even though it was a free gift for us, we didn't have to do anything to work for it or earn it or deserve it. Uh, It wasn't free. There was a high cost to it, and Jesus paid it for us. And so our team has come up with this awesome, uh, self-guided, interactive experience at the office and um, that moves through the passion story leading up to Christ's death. And we've got some original, beautiful artwork from Pam, some really thoughtful reflections that will help guide you through it. And so come on by at the office anytime between 5 and 9. And um, it can take as long or or as short as you want, um, but that is there for you. So make use of it. Um, It'll be a great time. We'd love to see you there. Now, I want to start today's message off with one word. The word is expectations expectations. Now that's a loaded word. I mean, when we think about expectations, it's this like strong confidence, strong belief that something is going to happen in the future. You expect it to happen. And I'm sure each of you have experienced this word in your life at some point or another, whether you have had expectations from someone else or you've had expectations placed on you. For parents, if you're parents in here, maybe you expect that your kids will do all your chores and your homework uh, the very first time that you ask, (laughs) and a few hours later, nothing has gotten done. Or if you're living with roommates, maybe you expect them to clean up after themselves and wash the dishes just like as a decent human being would, uh, but instead, none of that happens, and the house just gets dirtier and dirtier. Maybe you expect to go to work, clock in your normal nine-to-five, And instead, something happens, you're forced to work overtime, and you got to cancel your plans. Or maybe this one, this one, it may be a little bit personal for some people in the church, but maybe you plan a vacation to Hawaii, and you expect your vacation to be nice and beachy and sunny, and you get there, and it rains the entire time. I apologize for those of you guys who experienced that in December. (laughs) For me, sometimes I expect Stephen to know exactly what I'm thinking and feeling and what I want at any given moment of any day and to respond accordingly. Some of you guys may feel that way about your spouses. (laughs) Well, let me ask you this. Two questions. How do you feel when your expectations are not met? How do you feel when your expectations are not met? And number two. How do you respond when your expectations are not met? How do you feel and how do you respond? Now, go ahead and think about that throughout this sermon. We're going to revisit those two questions. How do you feel? How do you respond? Today's message is all about expectations. You see, the Jewish people knew a little something about this. 
And so we're going to revisit those two questions in just a little bit. Now, like I said, today is Palm Sunday, and we're going to be looking at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem that's recorded in the Gospels. Now, this story is actually one of the few that's recorded in all four of the Gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all included this in their books, and so we know that this is a very significant event. Each one includes information that's unique to the purpose of that gospel. There's little details that kind of differ here and there, um, but that add to the entire story. So I encourage you to read them all. Uh, But for today, we're going to be primarily grounded in the Matthew account. Um, If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, that's where where we're going to be this morning. Now, the reason that I chose to focus on the Matthew account is because of the unique perspective and purpose that Matthew brings to the story. It's widely known that Matthew's gospel account was written with the Jewish audience in mind. Yes, of course, it is applicable to all people, but he did write it with this specific audience in mind. He really wanted the Jewish people to see the connection, to see Christ in relationship to their Jewish tradition, their Jewish history, And so he did so by including many Old Testament prophecies and uh, illustrations and quotes, things that the people would be really familiar with. And his point was to show the people how Jesus is truly the fulfillment, the embodiment of all that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament, all the scriptures pointing to Jesus. Now, just for some context before we read the passage, um, this event takes place at the beginning of the final week of Jesus' life, the start of what's known as the Passion Week and the celebration of the Passover feast. Now, Passover was a big deal for the Jewish people. It was an annual reminder and celebration of how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Uh, he redeemed them. And so this week was, was a big celebration. Jews from all over the place would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate this annual feast. And it was around this time that a lot of people were excited. They were just thinking when, anticipating when God's kingdom would come, when the king, the Messiah, would come and save them. And so this scene begins as Jesus is preparing to enter into Jerusalem. Um, and he begins by making a few preparations. Now let's read together in Matthew 21, verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So you see, as Jesus prepares to make his triumphal entry, he first sends his disciples to go into the next village and to find a donkey. I mean, he gives them very specific instructions on, on where to find it, how to get it, what to say to people, etc., etc. And there's some debate here. People think that, okay, maybe Jesus was just a really good uh, planner, like a forward thinker. He was wise in making his preparations so far in advance, and that very well could be so. 
Uh, and other people think that this points more to his sovereignty, his uh, supernatural knowledge of what was to come. Um, we are not going to get into that today. <laughs> Just a side note. But the point is, from this text, we see that Jesus asked for a donkey. He asked for a donkey. Why would Jesus want a donkey? I mean, it's not that Jesus suddenly, you know, was walking and he got too tired to walk the rest of the way. Throughout his entire ministry, Jesus always walked. He always walked everywhere. This might be the very first time that Jesus is said to have ridden on an animal. But why? The, the distance was maybe only about two miles long. It's very walkable. Everyone... All the Jews traveling from near and far to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, they normally came by foot. So why, why did Jesus ask to ride on a donkey? Well, there's a very specific, very intentional reason for this. See, the purpose for riding in on a donkey was that Jesus was specifically and deliberately associating himself with the Old Testament prophecy. Remember what we said about Matthew, including these, the same thing that Josh was reading this morning, why he included this in this chapter. Jesus was very, very familiar with the Old Testament. He, we see this all the times that he's debating, he's talking with the, the Jewish scribes and the teachers. I mean, he was a rabbi himself. He knew very well what the Old Testament said and what the prophecy said about Israel's coming king. And so Jesus doing this is a big deal. He is saying, I am here to fulfill. I am this king. Again, it says from uh, the prophet Zechariah, says, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, at this point where Zechariah is talking, it's this point in history where uh, God's people had already returned from exile. Um, and, you know, even though they had returned, there's still the weight of everything that has been happening on their shoulders. They were still, you know, maybe uh, ashamed, maybe embarrassed, maybe hopeless. And so this prophecy that Zechariah gives, it's a, it's a message of hope prophesying of a future Messiah, a future king who would one day come and save them and deliver them. And this king would be riding on a donkey. Jesus is deliberately and radically claiming to be that promised anointed king of Israel, the one that they have all been waiting for. And you see, even the donkey is significant. Donkeys were a symbol of peace and humility and strength. And this is the part that we often misunderstand. Um, depending on the circumstances, kings would actually ride on donkeys. It was not an animal so beneath them that they would never ride on a donkey. It just the thing is, is what they rode on often communicated a message to the people around them. And so, you know, kings would normally uh, ride a horse or a stallion if they were seeking to go into battle or conquer an enemy. It was a, it was a symbol of great uh, power and force and military strength. But kings would ride on a donkey if they were coming in humility and gentleness to offer peace. And that's what Jesus did. Even in his most triumphant moment, even in the moment where he comes and he's declaring his kingship, we see Jesus' humility above all else. Clearly, this is not your typical king. You see why this event was such a big deal? 
Why it's recorded in all four uh, gospel accounts. This was Jesus's first public declaration to the people that he was indeed their promised long awaited King and Messiah. Up until this moment, with just a few exceptions here and there, Jesus generally would tell people to keep his identity quiet, a secret. When a leper is healed, Jesus says, see that you don't tell this to anyone. Or when a little girl is raised from the dead, we're told he gave them strict orders not to let anyone know about this. When Peter, one of his own disciples, spoke on behalf of the apostles and says, you are the Christ we read that Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. In all those moments back then, it was not yet time for Jesus' full identity to be revealed to the people. But now, the time had come. And you know what? The people, they seemed to be pretty receptive to this. Let's keep reading in verse 8. It says, A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? And the crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Can you imagine the scene for a second? I mean, Jesus is, you know, making his way on a donkey to Jerusalem, and the people are so excited. It's like a, if a celebrity came into our town, and there's excitement, and there's buzzing, and everyone's just whispering and talking, waiting for him to come. And you see, what they do is actually quite significant. I mean, the people, it says, began spreading their cloaks on the road for Jesus to ride as if they were laying out a red carpet. It was a big deal. In 2 Kings uh, 9.13, it says that the crowds spread their cloaks on the ground when Jehu was announced king of Israel. This was what they did for kings. And the palm branches that they waved in celebrations that they did um, all throughout the year, this was the celebration fit for a king. It was one of the greatest displays of respect and honor and allegiance that they could have given him. A symbol of acceptance and submission to him as their king. And it says here, the crowd shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Hosanna. Do you guys know what that means? I know we were singing the song Hosanna earlier. Oftentimes we see this phrase, we sing it uh, in songs. We think it's a declaration of praise, but really it's almost more of a prayer. A prayer of pleading, of desperation. It comes from the Hebrew phrase that translates to Lord save us. It's a cry for help. Jesus is riding in on every side of him. Everyone is shouting, begging, save us, save us, please. I mean, can you imagine all the emotions on that day? Can you picture the scene? Can you put yourself in their shoes? I mean, imagine that you are a Jew living during that time in the crowd and you see Jesus. You're, you know, it's crowded. You're, you're, you see him. You lock eyes with him. And you're, you're a good Jew. You're familiar with your people's history. You were a good student. And so you knew that prophesi- uh, prophecy from Zechariah very well. 
Your parents, your grandparents would tell stories over the dinner table about your ancestors who lived through periods of judges and prophets and kings. I mean, yes, you learned about every single one of those kings, 43 of them who did, most of them who did evil in the sight of the Lord. You knew the history. You knew that when the people were conquered uh, by the Assyrians, by the Babylonians, you carried with you the painful experiences of exile and suffering under foreign rule. And even after being allowed to return and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, still more oppression to come at the hands of the Romans who conquered you, who is still in power over you today, and who's still making your life miserable every day. So many years of waiting and enduring and hoping for the King, the Messiah to come, to come and free you from oppression, to save you. And it was here. The moment was finally happening. You see Jesus, the moment, the the day that all of your expectations would finally come true was here. Or so you thought. Like I said, the story is all about expectations. You see, the Jewish people had this great expectation for who Jesus would be. They anticipated his coming, but they actually expected that he would come as a warrior king. Someone ready to wage war on the Romans. They thought he would free them from oppression and reestablish Israel as a strong political power and nation. I mean, they thought that he was going to come and wipe out their enemies and sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem. But this was not exactly what Jesus came to do. Yes, Jesus was going to save his people, but not in the way that the Jews expected. His salvation would be far greater than that. We see Jesus do this all throughout the scriptures. All throughout the gospels, we see him constantly breaking expectations. Though the Jews expected the Messiah to be born a king and have a kingly birth, they didn't expect him to be born as a baby in a dirty manger with smelly farm animals and uh, shepherds and wise men to be the first people to recognize him. They didn't expect him to grow up in Galilee, especially not in Nazareth, that had the reputation that nothing good comes from Nazareth. They didn't expect him to be a carpenter's son without a prestigious pedigree or someone who would hang out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and actually call them friends. They didn't expect him to choose fishermen to be his closest disciples instead of picking the best and brightest from the crop. They didn't expect him to take time to interact with women and children and the poor or stoop down to wash his disciples' feet. No. And they certainly didn't expect that their Messiah would come in humility and in peace rather than in war. Jesus did not come in the way they expected, but he came in the way that they needed. They just couldn't see it yet. We read, we read uh, Paul writes in Philippians, he says this, Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, church, Jesus is not your typical king. He's not one to come in force. He's not one to hold on to his power and lord it over his people. He's not one to hoard his divine privileges and stay up in his high tower. No, he's a, he's a king who, even though he was God, even though he had all the might and the power and the glory of God, he let it go. He's the king who left the comforts of heaven to be born a human, walk the earth, and live life among his people. He's a king who understands the struggles and the pain and suffers along with us. And he's a king who out of his great love would actually selflessly and humbly sacrifice his own life to save us from sin, death, and eternal separation from our God. What kind of king is that? Who would ever do such a thing? I don't know about you, but I can't think of a king or a person who would do that. Do what Jesus did for us. What a humble king he is. What an unexpected king Jesus is. Jesus did not come in the way that they expected, but he came in the way they ultimately needed. As the Jews and the crowd celebrated Jesus' entry on that Palm Sunday, those shouts of joy and celebration, Hosanna, Hosanna, would in just a matter of days turn into angry screams of crucify him, crucify him. When they had the chance to choose whether to save Jesus or another prisoner, they opted to save the other guy, Barabbas, who was a zealot in in prison for murder and insurrection, whose literal life mission was to overthrow the Romans, even if it meant acting in violence. That's what they wanted You see, so long as Jesus met their expectations as a king, they would follow him and they would receive him with shouts of praise. But as soon as they realized that Jesus was not going to do that, was not going to meet those expectations in the way that they wanted, they abandoned him. They betrayed him. They turned on him and let him die the most brutal death on the cross reserved for the worst of all criminals. I know that sometimes we can read this story and cast a very harsh judgment on the people, right? How can they praise and celebrate Jesus as king one day and then crucify him the next? How could they not see Jesus for who he truly was? It's very easy to criticize and to judge. But how much are we also like that sometimes? How often do we do the same thing with Jesus? We want him. We ask for him to come. We pray for him. But when he doesn't come in the way that we want, then we start to lose faith. We expect that he's going to come in one way or do something. And when he doesn't, when he doesn't do what we think is best, then we get upset. We get disappointed. We start questioning God. Where are you, God, in this situation? Are you even real? Why aren't you working? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you doing anything? Aren't you king? It's a hard thing. I don't know about you, but I have been there. I have felt disappointed by God. Maybe you understand the perspective of the people, right? 
Remember, we talked about that desperation. Hundreds of years they've been waiting. They've been suffering at the hand of other nations. They're, they're hoping and praying and expecting for the Messiah to come and fight for them, to fight for their freedom. And the moment is here, and Jesus does none of that. I'm sure you could imagine the disappointment, the frustration. This is where we come back to those first two questions that we asked in the beginning. How do you feel when your expectations are not met? Angry, disappointed, frustrated? Now, number two, then how do you respond when your expectations are not met? How do you feel and how do you respond? They chose how they would respond to their disappointment. And today, so can we. The people felt disappointed and angry. They they couldn't see beyond what they wanted to see, and so they rejected Jesus as king. They didn't want what he had to offer them. They didn't understand. They didn't trust him. They didn't have the eyes to see that Jesus was actually fighting a greater, more important spiritual battle that would not only save them, not only save their lives now, but would actually save their souls for eternity. The people, they didn't get it. See, how we feel is one thing, but how we respond is is another. How we feel is one thing, but how we respond is what truly matters. The people chose to respond by rejecting Jesus. But for us today, we have a different way. There is a different alternative. Maybe instead of getting angry or losing faith because of our unmet expectations, we got to make a decision in that moment not to lose hope. Maybe it's praying to God for eyes of faith to see how Jesus is actually working, how he's exceeding our expectations. Maybe it's praying for humility to realize, okay, maybe what we think is best in this situation is not really what we need. Maybe it's praying that God would soften our hearts so we could receive him as king and actually trust him, trust the king of all kings in what he wants to do with our lives. I've been there, like I said, many times where I have thought that I knew what was best and I've desperately pleaded that God would act in that way and he didn't. And I was disappointed. I had one friend um, who was a pretty good friend of mine and she had been going through a lot of loss and loneliness and transition. It was just one of those seasons. But this season resulted in a Um, a long season of depression and suicidal thoughts. And throughout this time, my friend began questioning, God, why? Why is this happening? Where are you? Are you even real? Are you even good? And she was angry. And she just began to lose her faith in God. And as I watched all this happen, and I would meet up with her and talk with her, my heart was just breaking Because I didn't want her to lose her faith. I didn't want her to stop following Christ or to be sad or in pain. And I just kept praying on my own to God, like, can't you just fix her? I know you can. I know you have the power to. So please, can you just take away the depression? Can you just save her? And he, he did none of that. And I was discouraged. And I was disappointed. 
And at moments I was a little bit angry. And one day my friend, um, we met up again and she told me, you know, she'd been thinking and reflecting a lot, especially through this season. And even though she had been a Christian all her life, she never questioned anything. She just accepted what her teachers, her parents, her pastors, they all told her without question. But now, because of this, because of her experience right now, she's questioning everything. She's trying to figure out for herself if God is real. What kind of God is this? What does the Bible actually say? And she texted me a few months later that she heard the gospel again, and it was like she heard it for the very first time. And I was, I was blown away. Church, the story is still unfinished. I actually, I really don't know how it will turn out. Um, it's a, it's a testimony in progress. Um, and I, and I acknowledge, and I want to say here, I know that not all experience of, of depression are like that or will be solved in that way or that will happen. But just in this one, um, I was able to look at it and see how sometimes my expectations of how God would act, my um, thoughts of what would be the best thing in this moment is actually not what God is doing at all. I wanted God to just take away this hardship, but that was not actually what my friend needed to start seeing God to be real and personal for the first time in her life. Sometimes we want Jesus to come in flashy power, but Jesus almost always comes in humility. We see this all throughout his life. Sometimes we want the big, grand gesture, but Jesus is in the small details. Sometimes we want him to speak in the winds or the earthquake or the fire, but Jesus speaks in a gentle whisper. You see, Jesus doesn't always come in the way that we expect or want but he always comes in the way that we need, even if we don't yet see it. Feelings are one thing, but our response is what matters. Unmet expectations. We can be disappointed. We can be angry. We can feel sad, but how we choose to respond is what matters. Are we going to lose faith in God? Are we going to continue to trust in the King of Kings? The question is, how will you respond? Jesus was not the typical king. He was so much greater, so much that even death could not defeat him. And the good news is that Christ's death on the cross is not the end of the story. Three days after he was nailed to the cross, Jesus Christ rose from the grave victoriously. This king did not stay dead. He rose again, and now he reigns as king forever. The rest of that passage in Philippians ends with this. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is now exalted at his rightful place as king over all things with all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Mighty, sovereign, awesome in power and the exact type of humble king that we never thought we would expect and that we never knew that we needed. 
There is no other name, no other king that compares to him. Knowing the type of humble king Jesus is, knowing what he has done, how will you respond? Will you receive him as the king of your heart today? Would you invite him to be the king over your life today? Will you surrender to him, even if what he does or how he shows up isn't what you expected? Will you trust the king of kings who loves you so much to give you what you need, not necessarily what you want? Church, Jesus doesn't always come in the way that we expect, but he always comes in the way that we need. And he wants to be your king today. Let's pray for eyes to see him. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God that exceeds our expectations. We thank you that you are a humble king who didn't uh, stay up there, who didn't uh, keep your privileges and your power to yourself, but you're a king who came, who laid down your life so that we could be saved, so that we could have new life and eternity with you forever, Lord. We thank you that you didn't do what we wanted, but that you did what was best, what we needed. Lord, I pray for our church that in moments where we feel disappointed, where we feel like you're not meeting our expectations, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see with eyes of faith that you are king over all and your ways are higher and better than ours. We pray that you would give us eyes of faith to see how you're working and to trust in the King of Kings who are sovereign over all things. We pray that you would come humbly into our hearts and rule there in the way that is best um, that we don't even know that we need. You are the great and mighty and humble King, and we celebrate you today and every day, Lord. We love you so much. Would you continue to be with us as we reflect and we uh, worship you in this place? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.